Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the one to whom this word points, the word made flesh. We ask, Father, that you would give us grace to behold him more clearly than when we came here this morning. We thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, it seems to me that the prospect of going blind must be a terrifying prospect. I had a little brush with it some years ago when I experienced a detached retina, Mac off as they call it. It's the most serious kind. I was blind in my left eye, and the retina surgeon could make no promises. Now, by the way, by the way, the surgery was successful, and aside from the resultant condition of double vision without my glasses, oh, there's twice the number here than I thought. With the blessing of these prism lenses, my sight has been mostly corrected. Now, as overwhelming as the prospect of physical blindness might be, there's a far more intimidating blindness, isn't there? Spiritual blindness. And this blindness not only condemns one to a life of missing true beauty here on earth, but to a life of utter darkness and misery for all eternity in a place called hell. But there's an antidote. What is it? Well, it should be obvious. It's the sighting of that true beauty. You see, what we need, what we desperately need, is to be able to behold the beauty of God. What we need is the miracle of sight. And here's why. The Bible says that every person born in Adam is blind. Just listen to 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides or believes is what John means. No one who believes in Christ practices sin. And no one who practices sin, listen to this, has seen him or knows him. Or how about 3 John 11? It says, whoever does good is from God. That's a very simple idea. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does or practices evil 
here's John's, here's John's diagnosis, has not seen God. In Adam, we all sin. We all do evil. Our problem as unbelievers is that we were veiled. We were blinded to the gospel. The light of God's glory had not yet shone into our hearts. We desperately needed the light of the knowledge of that glory, which shines only in the face of Jesus Christ, to open our blinded eyes so that we could gaze at His beauty. And for believers, as it turns out, the problem is similar. Having seen the beauty of God in the face of Christ, we need to continually behold that beauty that we might be transformed into that beauty. For as Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, without beauty, no one shall see the Lord. Now our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 can help us. But first I want to take a few minutes to make certain we're clear that the problem is spiritual blindness. Now, a few stories better illustrate spiritual blindness than Jesus' healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. It's kind of a humorous story. I wish I had time to read it, but let's just remember the salient facts together. The, mind, the man was blind from birth. That's clear. No one disputes that. And Jesus gave him sight. Now, the Pharisees tried to dispute that, but there's a whole parade of witnesses that testify. There's two witnesses, his parents and him, that testify that he now can see. He was blind, he now can see. And then, of course, there's the famous response by the blind man in response to the Pharisees' question. The blind man says this, whether he be a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Of course, Newton enshrined that statement, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Of course, the critical application to all of humanity is this, that in Adam we're all blind spiritually from the womb. All have sinned and not only fall short of God's glory, but is unable, all of us are unable even to see God's glory, which is why Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't even see it. He's blind. No one can see the kingdom of God without the miraculous work of the Spirit in the new birth. You know, this seemed an appropriate time to pause in my sermon and just address any here that don't know Christ. Any here who either know they don't know Christ or are professing Christ falsely. You might not even know that. But regardless, I want to simply say to you, that God alone can save you. And thus the only reasonable response is to ask God to save you. And you say, but Wes, I don't really feel like I need to be saved. And I get that. 
Do you know that's a grace in and of itself? To know that you need to be saved. To know that you are facing the judgment of God. To know that the wrath of God already abides on you. That's a grace in and of itself. So my word to you is ask God to open your eyes to your current condition. To show you, as we say around my church, to show you your sin. To show you that that sin earns death. Ask God to do that. And ask God to show you the beauty of His Son in His death, burial, and resurrection. I think those are prayers that get you in the game. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Let me encourage especially the young folk. You know, it's Christmas time, and I know about kids wanting certain presents. And they don't have any trouble being persistent in asking for those gifts. I'm saying to you, be persistent in ask, asking God to open your blinded eyes to the horror of your sin and the beauty of His Son. That's, that's the best Christmas gift you could get. Now Paul said it this way, and let's go back to our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read it again just because it, a little repetition doesn't hurt. He says, since we have a hope, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Word. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, just to put this passage in its broad context, Paul is defending himself against the false teachers who were challenging his apostleship. Of course, they were assigning apostleship status to themselves. They were challenging it on several grounds, including his seeming lack of love. He was on the road. He wasn't present in Corinth with the church. Or his lack of eloquence. He admitted that his, his letters were weighty, but he was weak and trembling in person. Or his, his choice not to receive compensation. He argued that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Or his seeming lack of authority. It didn't really seem like he was doing anything, uh, though he was threatening to come uh, with a rod. But perhaps the biggest challenge was his lack of of letters of condemnation, condemnation, of commendation, his lack of letters of commendation. These apostles are like, hey, we've got some documents here that certify that we're the real deal. Where are yours, Paul? Paul's ultimate refutation is simply this, that the Corinthians, by God's Spirit, through the gospel, which has ushered in the era of the new covenant, which is a ministry of life, not of death. 
like the Old Covenant. Paul's argument is that these Corinthians are in fact his letter of commendation. And as such, they certify his apostleship. That's what's going on in the grand scheme. Now, as he extols that new covenant of which he is an apostle, I want you to notice its dominant feature. It's freedom. Here in 2 Corinthians 3, he's arguing for freedom to be able to see spiritually. Let me read verses 15 to 18 one more time. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's the freedom idea I'm talking about. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, free, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Unbelievers are lost because they can't see God. That's only something that God can do. There's a veil over the eyes of their heart so that when they hear the gospel, they're unable to see the glory of its subject. They're spiritually blind, as we once were. But when an unbeliever turns to the Lord, when a sinner is converted by faith, that veil is removed, and it produces freedom, liberty, the ability to behold the glory of the Lord. That's what happened when you got converted. You were able to see Jesus Christ for who he is. That's why when you're talking to somebody and, and it's not clicking and you're wondering, I've laid out all the arguments, you know, I've got all my apologetics in order, evidence that demands a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict, and they just look at you like a donkey looking over the fence. And, and Jesus is doing nothing for them. And you could be tempted to accuse or think ill of them, except the only thing that differentiates you from them is that God has miraculously opened your eyes. That's the only thing. You're not smarter. You're probably dumber. But you're certainly not more naturally spiritual. What's happened is that God, in eternity past, set his affection on you. And then in the space-time continuum, the gospel was brought to you, and that, that eye, thine eye, diffused a quickening ray. And you woke. You woke to the beauty of God's grace in Jesus Christ in you. That's right. Hallelujah is right. But I want to drill down into that glory. What is that glory? What am I specifically free to see? Well, yes, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached Christ, unlike the apostles who preached themselves, these false apostles. Paul preached Christ Jesus as Lord, who is the image of God and the radiance of God's glory. I want to continue in chapter 4 to just make that point. Pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the, light of God, in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, Paul preached Christ because God had shown the light of the gospel of the glory of God into his heart, enabling him and his fellow true apostles to give that light to those who heard his preaching. So what are we free to behold? I would say we're free to behold the dazzling beauty the dazzling beauty of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has freed us to imbibe with eyes of faith the unspeakable glory of His grace found ultimately in His Son's new covenant mediation for His people. Christ in His person and work in his humiliation and exaltation as the suffering servant and the king of kings is the very essence of God's glory. It's the very essence of God's beauty. We see the beauty of God ultimately in the face of Christ. Now understanding this, Understanding this, that Jesus, in his person and in his work, his death, burial, and resurrection, is the essence of God's beauty, let me ask you a question. Why would we not be drawn to him regularly, perpetually? What I'm really asking is, you know, you go through your day. We all go through our days, and there's certain tasks our mind has to focus on, aren't there? It's just, it's just kind of the way it is. I've recently been dealing with gutters being replaced on my house. There's an exciting task. I can tell you, I wake up every morning, I can't wait to talk to the gutter guy again who replaced my gutters and they're too low so the water, they look beautiful, but the water cascades over the gutters. So now I have new gutters and a waterfall. <laughs> but you have to give your mind to those kinds of things, don't you? you? You have to allow your mind to focus on all the exigencies of life. But here's the question. The minute your mind is not occupied in such a way, what is it that keeps you? What is it that keeps me from immediately being drawn as if by a magnet to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because we don't think about him like that. We don't think about him as beautiful. We don't think about his death, burial, and resurrection as the essence 
of true beauty. I think that's my problem. That's what I struggle with. And it's so contrary to nature. I mean, who isn't drawn to beauty? I mean, I remember 43 years ago being drawn to the beauty of my wife. It was first her external beauty, but over the last 42 years, more and more, it's been her character, her internal beauty that I'm drawn to. I mean, that's how beauty works. It's, it's magnetic. It draws us to it. I mean, think of the time and money people spend visiting beautiful places. Hawaii. That's where we went on our 25th wedding anniversary, and it was beautiful. The Grand Canyon, kind of a majestic beauty. Or recently, my wife and I took a little vacation to California. The Redwoods are beautiful. They're amazingly glorious. How about the fall foliage? I'm sorry, in New England. It's startlingly beautiful. And think of the time and energy that people expend, not to mention the money, to beautify their surroundings and themselves. Think of all the work to beautify our homes or to beautify our property, to beautify ourselves. Think of the time and money spent on clothes and cosmetics and hair. I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm just going to move right past that. I've been trained by a very good woman. Or the money and time we spent on workout regimens so we can be buff. You can tell I've spent a lot of time on that. Again, I'm not really critiquing any of those things. God has hardwired all of us to be drawn to beauty. And though Satan masquerades as an angel of light, he masquerades really as an object of beauty, yet the God of heaven wants our attention to be focused on his Son when he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Yes, Jesus is the gold standard for beauty. And by holding by beholding him, how can we behold him? How can we make sure we keep him in our viewfinder? How do we resist the counterfeit beauty of Satan that he devises to lure our hearts away from our heavenly bridegroom? By tenaciously holding to the gospel. By anchoring our souls in the book. The Bible, which speaks of Christ from Genesis to maps. In both Old and New Testament. For Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. He's the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. He's the fulfillment of everything found in the Bible. So here's what I thought we'd do this morning. Let's take it out for a ride. Let's give it a spin to see if God can help us to be more attracted, to feel a stronger magnetic pull, if you will, to the Lord Jesus Christ in his person in his work. Let me ask you a question. What do you see when you read the Genesis 1 creation story? 
What do you see? Let me suggest that what you should see, what God wants you to see, primarily, is the little phrase, and God said. It occurs numerous times. And God said, easy to pass right over it. You see, God created the universe in six days, I believe, through the agency of his spoken word. And John 1 tells us that that word was Christ. You see, what a picture of our all-powerful Savior, who by his resurrection and ascension upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, our king is beautiful. Not even Solomon in all of his glory compares to the splendor of the king of kings and lord of lords. And speaking of creation, have you ever thought of the way God's devised it all? The, The seasons, there's winter, the winter of our despair. That's sort of a metaphor for death, isn't it? Everything dies. Not really, just appears to die. And then spring, life. Or how about just the sleeping patterns that we have? We get to the end of the day. The Bible often uses sleep as a metaphor for death, does it not? We sleep, and then in the morning, we wake up. Life, right? The older you get, the more ardent your prayer, Lord, let me wake up in the morning or not. You know, I I have a wife who sleeps very deeply and wakes up very slowly. I say to her, I get to observe a resurrection every single morning. (laughs) She thinks that's funny. Let me ask you another question. What do you do when you read about the nation of Israel? What do you see when you read about Israel? You should see, by contrast, the true Israel, the true Israel keeping covenant with his God, fulfilling all that the law demanded, including submission to death as our sin-bearer. Greater love has no man than this. You see, our Savior's beauty glistened, did it not, as he hung on the cross for our sins? Or what do you see when you read the law of Moses, when you read the old covenant? What do you see? You should see the Holy One who, though tempted in all ways as we are, was yet without sin. How beautiful is Jesus' unsullied goodness and purity and holiness, even turning the other cheek in forgiveness of his enemies. And we see that same Beauty and all the temple motifs, the priests, the sacrificial animals, all the feasts culminating in the Day of Atonement on the Jewish ceremonial calendar. They all point to the beauty of his death, burial, and resurrection for us. What does Romans say? He was delivered up for our iniquities. He was raised for our justification. That is, he had to raise from the dead so that he could present the sacrifice of himself in the true holy of holies in heaven. That sacrifice which alone justifies sinners. And what do you do with all the three-day motifs throughout the Old Testament when you read those? You just skip right over those? I'm talking of things like 
Abraham and Isaac scaling Mount Moriah on the third day, a metaphorical resurrection, Hebrews 11 says. Or God's calling Israel to the wilderness three times and then appearing to them at Sinai in Exodus 19 on the third day. God appears on the third day, another resurrection motif. Or of Benjamin being saved from utter annihilation on the third day in Judges. Or of the northern kingdom's restoration. Remember Assyria in 722 came in and exiled the ten northern tribes. Of the northern kingdom's restoration described in Hosea as a third day resurrection. Or of Hezekiah's recovery from a certain death. And 2 Kings 20 says it happened on the third day. You see, these are all designed to get our eyes on Jesus if we're reading our Bibles correctly. Or how about Esther's prayer and fasting? The text is clear. She prayed and fasted that Israel would be saved from the decreed destruction of Ahasuerus. And it says she did that for three days and three nights. And of course, there's Jonah, the sign that Jesus pointed to. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. You see, God wants us to behold his son. He wants us to be dazzled by the beauty of our Savior who gave his life that we might have life and have it to the full. And thus, of course, there are many portraits in the New Testament Portraits that are painted by and interpreted by his apostles, the very ones who beheld his glory as the only begotten Son. We have their portraits, their paintings. I mean, let me ask you another question. Christmas time, is not your heart drawn? Is it not drawn to the one willing to become a babe in a manger? And what did the angel say to Joseph? And you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Wow, it's mesmerizing when you think about it. And are you not attracted to someone who compassionately feeds a beleaguered crowd of 5,000 men, mercifully heals a woman with perpetual bleeding, tenderly leads an immoral woman at the well to saving faith, and freely forgives a prostitute, probably Mary Magdalene? And how about the beauty of his compassion and power to raise Lazarus from the dead after having wept with Martha and Mary over his death? That whole scene in John 11 blows my mind. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, from the dead. And yet the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. There's just something incomparably beautiful about such compassion and tenderness 
I mean, who isn't attracted to one who, though despising the shame of the cross and agonizing over the rejection by his father such that he prayed three times in the garden for the cup to pass, nevertheless still obeyed his father and loved his bride all the way to Calvary. Now that's beautiful. And is there a more tender display of love and forgiveness than when Jesus restored Peter in John chapter 21 with his threefold affirmation corresponding to Peter's threefold denial. It's so tender. It's so sweet. Perhaps there's not a more beautiful moment than Jesus crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Can you imagine saying this when you had the power to wipe them all out? And instead you say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Especially knowing that his prayer could only be answered by his father's rejection of him as a sin bearer of the world. Don't think Jesus was kind of confused when he prayed that prayer. He knew what was required, and he was doing it. Such mercy, such grace, such sacrifice, all designed to capture the affections of our hearts. Now, we could gaze at Christ from every page of Scripture, because the Bible is the book of Christ. The law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, the apocalypse, all bear witness of Him. But a legitimate question is, well, why should we? Okay, Wes, that all sounds wonderful, but why should we do it? Why should we orient our lives around Scripture, around the gospel, hearing it preached, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, letting it dwell richly within us? Why should we work hard to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as revealed in God's holy word? It's simple. It's because... You are becoming what you behold. In fact, I could say it this way. You are what you behold. And in the process of sanctification, you're becoming more and more like the image of Jesus Christ. So the more you behold it, the clearer you see it, the better and stronger and deeper your transformation. You know, I remember growing up, my father was a professional trumpet player, so there wasn't many choices. Clarinet was not on the table. Um, I was going to play the trumpet if I did anything, and I did, and at one time I, I was interested in playing professionally. I played professionally when I was in college. But I quickly adopted an idol. His name was Maynard Ferguson. Uh, he's now passed away. I don't know how many Maynard Ferguson concerts I've been to. I've driven all over the eastern United States to see him in person. Uh, and he held his trumpet a certain way. Instead of putting his hand fully around the valve casing, he kind of split it right here so that he had two fingers at the bottom of the valve casing. And when he played, he would take his breaths. He was a showman. He'd take his breath put his trumpet up in the air, and just kind of sit down, almost like he was a 
linebacker for Ohio State. So guess what I begin to do? And I still do. I hold my trumpet just like Maynard. Now I don't do this except when I'm just playing in front of the mirror. Uh, you see, you become what you behold. And I beheld him as a young man in high school. I got, became enraptured with him. And I wanted to be like him. We're talking about the same thing here. As we behold Christ, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we increasingly see beauty as God defines it, we're transformed into his image. The fact is, there's no other way to become holy. This is God's only prescription. This is how you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Christ is formed in you. This is how you bear the fruit of the Spirit. This is how you put on love. This is how you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and how you love your neighbor in Christ as yourself. as we close I want to be frank with you all this talk about beauty is right in fact it's fantastic we need to have our hearts transformed so that what God calls beautiful is what we think is beautiful and that's that's a takeaway right there to go home and say, oh Lord, help me. Help me to see your son as the epitome of beauty. But I want to warn you that Satan is not sitting idly by as we seek to stoke the fires of our passion for Jesus Christ. In fact, he's working overtime to counterfeit Christ's beauty. He's like a prowling lion seeking someone to deceive, to fake out, to embrace his counterfeit beauties. We have to know our enemy. So what can we do? What must we do? Well, we must do what James tells us to do. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Resist his counterfeit beauties. And what will he do? He will flee from you. You know, I recently performed a wedding service for one of my daughters. Now all five are married. According to our service format, before the father passes the daughter over to the groom, both bride and groom declare their intent. The words of that declaration are as follows. Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? This is what the man says. The woman says the same thing in mirror image, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, keep yourself only for her so long as you both shall live? Now there are two aspects that I draw from that vow, that declaration of intent uh, for a good marriage relationship. And frankly, therefore, to resisting the devil. On the one hand, there must be a genuine attraction to the other person. 
This entails some level of admiration for one's spouse. For instance, I have a list of qualities that I admire about my wife posted right on my wall. It's sort of my Proverbs 31 list, if you will. All the things for which she's praiseworthy. In a sense, it's kind of a resume of her beauty. And I try to review this list regularly. I thank God for it, and I work hard at praising her for those things. And I've learned that she never tires of hearing it. She never tires. Now, Jesus Christ is our heavenly bridegroom. We resist the devil. We resist his counterfeit beauties by letting the Bible, that is the gospel, supply us with God's beauty resume in Christ. And then to do as the psalmist exhorts us to do. We review the list. We work hard then at offering up a perpetual sacrifice of praise. Now that's what we've been talking about this morning, about beholding his beauty. And naturally when you behold it, you're going to praise him for it. But there's a second aspect to a good marriage and therefore to resisting the devil. It's actively, as the declaration says, it's actively forsaking all others. You see, no matter, no matter the excellency of one's spouse, there are always competitors, aren't there? And not just other people. Both spouses must work hard to prevent any of these competitive, counterfeit beauties, if you will, to gain an emotional foothold, whether online, at work, or even in the church. We resist the devil by continually filtering our attractions whatever they may be, whomever they may be, through the gospel and being willing to forsake all unholy attractions. To which you ask, well, what is an unholy attraction, Wes, and how can I identify it? Two ways. First, it's an unholy attraction if it's at all contrary to God's word. By definition, if it's contrary to God's word, it's an unholy attraction. It's a counterfeit. It's luring you away from the beauty of God in the face of Christ. You know, at NETS, which is our uh, training and sending center for church planting and revitalization, I preach at the guys there the three W's that can shipwreck their ministry. What are they? Wine, women, and wealth. Those are the three things that can knock the knees right out, not just of their ministry, but their whole lives, their faith, their souls. These things must be forsaken if a man is to be a qualified leader. But there's a second thing. It's an unholy attraction if it at all rivals one's affection for Jesus Christ, no matter what it is. The Kansas City Chiefs, not the team itself, but your obsession with following them and watching them you say, Wes, that seems kind of mean. I've got the same problem with the Ohio State Buckeyes. I have to purposefully not read about them because they become too important to me. And they dull, it dulls my affection, my 
beholding of Christ's beauty. Jesus said it this way in Luke 14, that we cannot be his disciples unless we hate those closest to us, mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, which includes our own lives, and unless we give up all of our possessions. We cannot be his disciples. That's what he says. See, he's going after the heart. That's what he's trying to do. He wants hearts that are wholly his. No, even close second, second place. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength, but sin's presence is real, and idols are easily manufactured. Unholy love affairs with family and friends, unholy love affairs with hobbies and leisure, unholy love affairs with health and fitness, unholy love affairs even with ministry. You see, no spiritual flirting is allowed. No spiritual flirting is to be booked. We must watch over our hearts with all diligence, says Solomon, and root out all competing attractions if the beauty of God through the gospel in the face of Christ is to capture our affections. So my brothers and sisters, I say this in closing, be captivated with the beauty of your God as ultimately revealed in the person and work of his son by beholding God's beauty resume, the gospel, and by steadfastly resisting and rooting out all, all counterfeits. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your son. Isn't he beautiful? Yes. Isn't he? We pray in his name. Amen.